Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. There are certain truisms that have shaped the historiography of the 19th century Ottoman Empire. Conventional wisdom has it that the history of non-Muslim communities in the late Ottoman Empire is a history of secularization and national identity formation. This is the very narrative that my guest, Richard E. Antaramian, tries to revise in his new book, Brokers of Faith, Brokers of Empire, Armenians and the Politics of Reform. This monograph presents a careful study of the Armenian church and the documents produced by its various branches. It follows clergymen from Jerusalem to Van to Istanbul, as well as other cities in between. It tells the story of the partnership of reformist Armenian elites with the Ottoman state during the Tanzimat period. The stories Richard extracts from his archival research bring us into the intimate lives of the Armenian clergymen who elaborated rival positions towards reform. By the end of the reform period, the Armenian church was marginalized from imperial politics, which Antaramian suggests was a result of the catastrophic success of Ottoman imperial centralization, which they themselves helped bring about. I am your co-host, Deren Artash, and I am very pleased to welcome Richard to today's episode of the Middle East series at the New Books Network. Hi, Richard. Hello. One of the sort of well-known features of Ottoman imperialism was the way in which it instrumentalized non-Muslim religion to enforce imperial rule, what might also be termed as the politics of difference. The non-Muslim communities uh, who came to be known as millets were given autonomy over their own internal affairs and given freedom of worship as they wish in exchange for loyalty to the state and the poll tax known as the jizya. Over the last decades, um, scholars have challenged the notion that there was a millet system um, until the early 19th century. And your book tries to also uh, place the evolution of the Armenian millet in the sort of uh, wider narrative of the 19th century. And um, I'm wondering how was sort of Armenian community organized before the before it became a millet? Sure. Well, firstly, thank you for having me and thank you for that kind of introduction. Uh, so as you correctly noted, uh, we have come to, for, for a long time, there was this assumption that the so-called millet system was a long-standing feature of, the, of Ottoman imperialism, that it begins with 1453, the conquest of uh, Istanbul by uh, Fatima II, um, and that from that point forward, a deal is cut with the Greek church, and it's then from that point forward that through the institutions of non-Muslim religious institutions that the empire rules over its non-Muslim subjects. Uh, there's always a hint of truth to that, certainly as uh, some have shown the, the church is used as a tax farm, uh, the church in different areas is used for different pur- to serve different purposes. But what we call the millet system, this you know, kind of like systematized uh, mode of governance that imbues these non-Muslim religious institutions with 
clarity and coherence and gives them very defined concrete roles to play in imperial governance is really only a feature of uh, the 19th century and the work of uh, obviously Benjamin Brody, uh, but you know, a whole host of people uh, thereafter have you know, pointed to this and they, they've highlighted the fact that uh, a lot of these non-Muslim communities actually are producing uh, forged documents in the early 19th century to establish sets of prerogatives that appear to be timeless in order to justify or legitimize these new kind of more defined uh, codified roles that they attempt to play in imperial governance. So my work builds upon that, but I asked another question, which is to say, what were they doing beforehand? It's not that they were just kind of this you know, kind of like disassembled mess that existed previous to the, to the, uh, the beginning of the of the 19th century and the the kind of move towards a systematization of these uh, of these non-Muslim communities, and as I dug around, it something became clear to me is that in in the 18th century, especially um, with the Greek and the Armenian churches, you see kind of the the beginnings of centralization. You see the expansion of power and authority of both the Armenian and Greek patriarchates of Constantinople. Uh, You see them kind of attaching more dioceses to their their jurisdictions. Uh, You see them gaining power and authority over other uh, very kind of well-positioned, historically important uh, sees, holy sees, that's S-E-E-S for those who are not initiated. and you see them growing and just generally growing in power and significance. And the question is, why do we see this happening in the 18th century? And if we take a closer look, it's really, we can kind of pinpoint it to the last decades of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century. And it's at this moment that the Ottomans are, that the Ottoman Empire generally is coming out of a series of crises. This is what uh, Baki Tezjan refers to as the second half of the second empire. And the empire embarks on uh, a whole series, basically renegotiates the entirety of its realms in order to place the central state, the sublime port and the sultanate, the, the prime ministry and, the, and the, the monarchy, at the center of imperial politics because their position had been contested. You have a series of regicides, you have a series of uprisings, um, the, the power of the of the monarchy, the power of the state is nothing close to absolute. Uh, it's it's a fiction in most corners of the empire. So they they renegotiate the entirety of the realms, and at the center of this is the introduction of life term tax farming. Now, for those of us who have studied Ottoman history, there is really nothing more boring than getting kind of beat over the head early in your graduate studies with all these studies of tax registers. Like, who cares? Like, give me something a little bit more fun to work with. I don't care, like, how... This is just completely uninteresting. Um, And for a long time, I was of that opinion as well. And I still am to a certain extent, particularly with, uh, given the fact that a lot of this is written uh, by people who, as uh, one of my advisors, Rudy Linder, said, use English language as a blunt weapon. So it's very kind of boring material written in a very boring fashion, but you have to get through it. You have to assimilate it. You have to deal with it. And what became clear is that the switch to life term tax farming coincides. So, sorry, to kind of take a step back. So the, the, the introduction of life term tax farming is put into place by the Ottomans, where they give these contracts to people and they say, all right, uh, you know, for the entirety of your life, you can go out there and you are going to collect taxes in, the, in this province. Um, and what this does is, so previous to that, they had been on a kind of shorter term. So you'd send somebody out to a place for a three-year term, a five-year term. They get out there and, uh, in order to get this position in the first place, they have to make a big payment to the Imperial treasury, uh, to get this right. So the first thing that they're going to do when they get out there is they're going to try to make their, they're, they want to make their money back. Um, and then they want to profit. So they are just going to take as much as they, they're going to extort extract as much value out of this place as they can. And that makes it very, very difficult for someone to grow an economy. Uh, It becomes almost impossible and it creates all sorts of instability. And this was one of the reasons why we have uh, a 17th century, especially that is marked by all these uprisings. So the shift in the, in the beginning of the 18th, end of the 17th century to lifetime tax farming says, we're going to send a guy out there for 30 years. And while he's out there for 30 years, his interests now are in growing that economy. Right? Because if the economy grows, then he's going to be able to collect that much more tax, uh, and he's not going to be there. He's not going to have a short-term investment. He'll have much more 
uh, much greater interest in kind of keeping that uh, keeping that going. And as I said, this coincides then with the rise of not just the um, the ecclesiastical kind of uh, uh, the ecclesiastical uh, hierarchy, the, the kind of like uh, increased uh, codification, the increased uh, clarity and coherence of the of Armenian Greek churches, but also coincides with really the rapid rise of the Phenarios, these Greek Orthodox elites, uh, about whom Christine Filiou uh, especially writes wonderfully. Uh, they had been around beforehand, but they really, in the 18th century, kind of launched to the fore. And it's also in the 18th century that you see the rise of these Armenians called Amiras. And these Amiras are, for the most part, uh, engaged in uh, financing. That's where they, I mean, they they end up getting into other parts of uh, the economy and other parts of the government, but really they're making their money in financing. So we have these three things happening at the same time: the established the the expansion of ecclesiastical authority, the rise of non-Muslim elites, and the kind of rise of a new cadre of Muslim elites, these so-called ions, uh, these notables at the edges of the empire. And I said. These things, these three things, cannot be disconnected from one another. They are all clearly serving the same purpose, which is the expansion of state authority. They render the realm more legible. They render the realm more stable. And it's clear that we know to, and we know a couple things. We know that these Armenian emirs, especially, are bankrolling a lot of these tax farms. Um, that they, through that, gain close connections with the with the state, with provincial notables, and with other forces that can make claims on the empire's sovereignty, that can make claims on the empire's politics. We also know that these amiras are trying whatever they can to get into, the, to control the church. The question becomes why? Um, if you take a look at some of the older things that have been written about these relationships, the argument is that, well, the amiras can't actually access Ottoman power because they're not Muslims. Uh, that they can't actually uh, wield power. As we know with the Fenarios, that's not the case. The Fenarios wield real power. Um, so who, who among the Armenians then wields real power? Well, it's the church. And that's exactly why the Amiras are trying to control the church, because the Armenian church does have the ability, as the steward of a non-Muslim community, to make claims on the empire's politics. So, for example, uh, if, uh, if uh, an Armenian does something wrong that the Armenian church considers to be an offense, the Armenian church can go to the government and say, lock this guy up. Or the Armenian church can itself take this guy and lock him up. So there's a real, there's real access to coercion. Uh, there's real, they can actually do things. But if you're a rich Armenian, and these people are not stupid, you're not investing in the Armenian church. You're not spending all this money to make sure that your preferred person is made patriarch of Constantinople. You're not spending all this money to make sure your preferred person is made bishop of this or that diocese just so that you can do what? You know, beat up a peasant, uh, send someone to jail, right? This is not, you're not wasting all that money to have access to that. What became clear is that the the Amiras are trying to control the church because the church is this perfect institution. It is this far-flung institution with a center that is becoming increasingly powerful. This is the perfect vehicle for ensuring that your investments, which are made across the empire, can be protected. So what we have is uh, the, the situation that obtains is you have clergymen at the edges of the empire who are, at the end of the day, generally answerable to the patriarchate, or at least to their provincial prelate, who is oftentimes appointed by the patriarchate, um, who are positioned at the edge, basically between communities and the government. So we have these Muslim tax collectors at the edges of the empire. Well, if they want to get stuff done, so they eventually have to collect money from non-Muslims, in this case, Armenians, who's a who knows best how to collect money from Armenians? Well, the clergy does because they have this whole system in place that tells you where, who is, who owes what, who's related to whom, how you can lean on whom to make sure they make their the correct payment, etc. So the clergy becomes conscripted into this system 
but then the so the clergy then are positioned to gain access to local governors to Muslim elites at the edges of the empire. And of course, if you are someone who is invested in the tax collection um, services of the empire, as the emirs are, this is exactly who you want to work with. So the situation that obtains is this kind of very kind of dense networked environment whereby the state outsources tax collection to Muslims at the edges of the empire. Armenian emirs finance it. They basically put up the money up front that goes into the coffers of the government. So the Armenians, the Armenian, the wealthy Armenians are supporting the state. They are making the state stronger by by helping them by basically providing the, the financial capital they need to stabilize state society politics. And we see, you know, the, the number of rebellions and insurrections that happened in the 18th century are a pittance compared to what we have in the previous centuries for exactly this. So the Armenians are basically with their money uh, helping stabilize the economy, stabilizing society. Uh, and the clergy are basically on the front lines of doing so. And it's through them then that these, that the Armenian emirs get access, not just to the government, by, because they're giving, actually making the payment to the treasury on behalf of these people, but they get access through the clergy, then also to these provincial actors at the edges of the empire. So the Armenians basically become a kind. The, the Armenian community becomes this very kind of. It becomes this empire-wide space that is networked that really pulls the different forces of imperial society together, and as a result, the Armenian church becomes this uh, institution that really helps. Uh, lay the groundwork for the later centralization of the state by making sure that all of these different forces are ultimately coalescing around Istanbul and the, the state and, and the monarchy. Before the Tanzimat or in the early 19th century, we have this sort of networked um, community of Armenian amiras and clergymen who are... Um, sort of working together and along with IANs and with the state to allow certain things to function smoothly, like tax collection, as you just said. Um, but something changes, right? Uh, at some point, something arises where um, the clergymen and the amiras are no longer seeing necessarily eye to eye, and the clergymen, uh, if, if I understand correctly, become somewhat suspicious of the power of the amiras of the church. And so we have the Armenian National Constitution, which is first passed in 1860, and then um, new constitution is drafted and passed in 1862. Um, and, and, and it seems to me that um, there is a sort of shift in the balance of power with this document. So um, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how you locate it in this um process of the uh, creation of the Armenian millet and how it sort of changes the balance of power between the clergymen and the amiras. Sure. So this is uh, this transition, if you will, from this communal space that we see obtained in the 18th century, really kind of continues to exist into the 19th century. It shifts then, as, I, as we discussed earlier, uh, where we have the kind of construction, if you will, of the millet system in the 19th century. Uh, so as the as we see the shift from communal space to millet, what we're actually seeing is a shift also in the partnership between the Armenian community and the non-Muslim communities generally and the imperial state. So as the imperial state begins embarking on kind of much more invasive centralization policies beginning with uh, Selim III in the last decade of the, of the 18th century, the role that the non-Muslim communities are supposed to play changes as well. And this is what I, I, what I argue precipitates the shift to, towards millets. So millets as these kind of more clearly defined, uh, more centralized uh, institutions uh, is something that we see playing out in the context of the centralization. So if we take a look at the kind of like general, uh, so, and then we're going to get to 1860 with the Armenian National Constitution. So what we see happening in the intervening years is a series of disruptions, a series of uh, demolitions, if you will, uh, to borrow uh, Filiou's language. In the context of imperial governance, with the three main non-Muslim communities, the Armenians, the Greek Orthodox, and the, the Jews, as we said, the Armenians are the, the people that are 
you know, that this, this is why they're called the so-called loyal millet, I, I imagine. We don't know when that term actually emerged, but if we're in the millet sadica, it's probably because they were the closest to the state, right? They're the ones who are working with the bureaucrats. They're the ones who are working with the port. With the, they, are the near, they are the exclusive financiers of both the port and the sultanate. And they are using their church, their institutions, their capital to make sure that the port and the state and the sultanate are perched top imperial governance. Then we have the Greek Orthodox who are largely organized in, uh, to say nothing of the Arab provinces, of course, but you know, in the Balkans at least, largely organized in these uh, finerial households, and they command large sections of the Ottoman formal government as you know, translators, as governors, uh, as diplomats. So that's how they, and they kind of act there in that space as a broker of sorts between uh, the state and Muslim notables in the Balkans, uh, but also in the, uh, but also in certain cases with the Janissaries. And then we have the Jewish community, and they're able, I would imagine, to do so for similar reasons as the Armenians in that they have this kind of you know, far-flung ecclesiastical institution. The Jews, however, are almost exclusively urban in Ottoman imperial space, right? In, in the Middle East, Jews are almost exclusive. This is not like in like the Pale of Settlement with the Ashkenazim, but the, the Jews in the Ottoman Empire, the Jews in the Middle East are almost exclusively organized in urban centers. And as a result, they don't have the same far-flung centralized ecclesiastical institutions as do the Christians. But if they're in center, if they're in cities, that means they have another kind of natural ally that would be through the guilds, and that would be the Janissaries. So it comes there as no shock, just as we have the Armenians who are financing the, the state, the Jews finance the Janissaries. The, the Janissaries, of course, are this large impediment to any type of Ottoman centralization uh, program, not because they're traditionalist as they've been cast, um, uh, not because they are necessarily reactionary, uh, but because through their, through their longstanding relationships with the government, they've ensconced themselves in society in the economy especially. Uh, and they have a lot of reason to, um, to ensure that the, uh, the propagation of the, of the status quo, which is to their benefit. The problem, though, is that whenever this, the state tries to you know, modernize, when we say modernize, what we really mean is centralize, is to say take power from these other groups in society and place it into the institutions of the state, the Janissaries, of course, balk. And they, when they they object uh this leads to kind of more uprisings that had been we thought had been a thing of the past uh and it comes to a head of course in the the uh with the um the regicide of selim the third um so we have the death of selim the third uh we have the this kind of new uh detente of sorts that emerges uh but then it begins to unravel again with the Again, as a result of the state's effort to centralize, when the state goes into the Balkans and starts going after these Muslim notables. That, incidentally, is what um, uh, leads to the so-called Greek Revolution, or really the Greek Rebellion. Uh, and this leads to a general unraveling of it. Be, it begins the process. It, it really kind of uh, catalyzes the unraveling of a politics of difference that had organized the imperial realm for so long. So, with the Greeks, uh, that leads to the the. Ge- almost near complete ejection of the Fenario households from the Ottoman Empire, the Greek rebellion beginning in 1821, lasting until 1830, at least the near complete ejection of the, of the Fenarios. Uh, and with it, the, the kind of role of the Greek Orthodox Church also is reduced significantly. Uh, that then also leads, a few years later in 1826, to the destruction of the Janissaries, right? because you no longer have this break of sorts between the Janissaries and the state uh, in the form of the scenarios, it makes it much easier than for the state to kind of isolate the Janissaries, go after them, and remove them. So you have these different groups that have, you know, marshaled certain you know, pieces of Ottoman sovereignty, and then they're they're just disappearing, and it, it leaves the state empowered. It leaves the state is you know probably weaker in certain uh, certain uh, respects, but vis a vis these other claimants on the empire's politics, it is much stronger and can be much more assertive in going about centralizing, again, invest, taking power from other groups and placing it into the state, into the institutions of the state, it can become much more efficient about going about that. So as we build towards the Tanzimat then, uh, the Tanzimat uh, introduced in 1839 
isn't this big rupture of sorts that it's always presented as. It's just a kind of next step in this process of centralization that we see beginning, as I said, within the late 17th, early 18th century, where they kind of set everything down and they kind of move slowly towards bringing things back in, uh, back into the institutions of state. 1839, this gets rid of tax farming. Uh, and this really strikes at the at the Amiras, at the wealthy Armenians, because no longer do they have access to this financial system that had brought them massive uh, windfalls of cash. And once they no longer have that, then that calls into question what role the Armenian church is supposed to play. And so the Armenian church kind of goes into this, uh, for decades prior, it had been you know, also kind of continuing the centralization, but this begins the moment by which you see a shift of sorts happen in the partnership, where the, the Ottoman state is looking at the Armenian community. All right, so beforehand, they've been working with the Amiras, who control the church. Now they're looking for new partners. And when they get rid of the, the Greek Orthodox, the, the, they don't get rid of them, but they get rid of the, the Fenarios, that creates a need for diplomats, it creates a need for translators, and they create the Translation Bureau in the 1820s. And who do they bring in? They bring in Armenians. And they bring in Armenians not as people who are organized into households and therefore kind of you know get pieces of Ottoman sovereignty that they can then use to leverage their positions in state. They're brought in as salaried employees of the government. So this is a, a massive shift in these people then, and these technocrats, so some Amiris had also kind of gotten into the government as technocrats. So suddenly you have these Armenians who are tethered very, very closely, not as partners of the state, but as employees of the state. And the state begins working more and more with these people in order to go about and continue the, uh, the, the reorganization of the empire. And you still have this Armenian church, which is ensconced in these very relationships of power, these networks of power throughout the empire. These have not been wholly dismantled just because you got rid of tax farming. Uh, these things remain in place. So the Armenian church, therefore, becomes this, um, this flashpoint, this you know, kind of front line in battles over state centralization. And the introduction of the Armenian constitution. So the Armenian constitution, um, if you read people who have talked about it beforehand, they're like, oh, this secularizes things because it means that the Armenians can vote on who their patriarch is. Well, okay, you know, the Armenian church is established in the fourth century. Lay people have had the, the greater say in determining who a Catholicos, a patriarch, or whoever is. Um, it's been a feature of Armenian political life since the fourth century. Uh, and the laity, even today, the laity has tremendous say in who is elected. So this isn't this isn't secularization. Um, is it nationalization? I mean, I fail to see that as well. Um, but if we actually read the, the the Constitution, which all these people who have said all these things about my my great issue with Ottoman studies is that all these people say these things about Armenians, but they never actually read what the Armenians say themselves. If we go through the Constitution, the first part of it has all this, you know, kind of like fluffy pie in the sky French liberalism about rights and individuals' responsibilities, etc. It's like, okay, you get past that, and you get to what is this thing is actually about. This thing legislates a diocese. It spells out very clearly: this is what a diocese is. This is what a monastery is. This is the role of a monastery. This is who can be a priest. This is who cannot be a priest. It's spelling out very, very clear rules about how the church is supposed to operate. This is not secularization, um, and uh, unless, of course, we mean secularization in a different uh, vein, in which case I'm open to that discussion. But this is not secularization in the mode of modernization theory, as it's been. Uh, kind of uh, used to this point in the discussion. By introducing these controls in the clergy, what they're really doing is they're going as, to these clergy and saying, okay, so for decades now, these arrangements placed you in league with these Muslim elites. It placed you in league with these Amiras. And together, you basically went to the people and you extorted them. And you, uh, if we look at the, the if we read uh, the numbers coming out of Cilicia, basically you're taking 10 times from them what you should have been in tax, which, you know, meant you got really rich, the monastery got really rich, um, but everybody else kind of lost out. You don't get to do that anymore, right? These controls make it so that you can't do that. So for the Armenians in the provinces, it's like, aha, finally, we control our own institutions. And we're, con 
we can take our institutions away from these people who have used it to create this system in which we are exploited. And from the state's perspective, they're saying, aha, we are now breaking up these networks of power that are resisting the efforts of the state to centralize, that are rebelling in the case of the Kurds in the, in the, in the east and the, the Derebes in, um, in the south. We can finally go after these networks of power and we can bring in these Armenians. So these Armenians who are bureaucrats, these Armenians who are peasants, they all begin to see themselves now as the custodians of this partnership with the state, that the, the partnership has shifted from the Amiras to the people, if you will, in, for lack of a better term. Uh, and this is happening at the same time that we see the communal space shifting to a millet, and we see the state as well shifting from this kind of toleration of a kind of more, I don't say decentered, but a, a more kind of flexible empire, something that is much more kind of rote in its centralization. This raises a lot of questions in my head, um, like one that has to do with the ways in which state centralization changes the relationship between Armenian and Kurdish communities in eastern Anatolia. But I think we'll get back to that um, a little bit later. Um, right now, I want to ask you about um, those Armenians um, who also feature heavily in your in your book. Um, who are sort of within the ranks of the church, but who oppose the sort of centralization measures from um, from the sort of reformist strain. And um, yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about these individuals and what kinds of stakes they are articulating in remaining within the sort of old system. And um and maybe also like the, I think now we get a pretty good sense of the stakes that are involved in reforming the church. Um, but I, this counterposition is, is of course of great interest and, and features quite um, yeah strongly in your narrative that there's no sort of united front, right? There's always these negotiations and, and discussions. So you do, of course. Uh, so um, as we said, you know, the, the church becomes this kind of flashpoint and it's, uh, it's contested not just by the Armenian reformers who are saying, ah, oh, finally we can do this. They meet vested opposition, as you, as you mentioned. So you have these clergymen who don't want to relinquish their power, don't want to relinquish uh, their authority, the prestige, uh, the capital that this uh, allows them to access, and they react violently. Uh, they react violently as part of an effort to save and preserve this kind of previous, uh, this, this networked system that had uh, previously been organized by these things. And they resort to, in some cases, murder, uh, oftentimes intimidation, uh, beatings. We have episodes of uh, Armenian clergymen, we, we assume, uh, raping Armenian women. Uh, we have many episodes of beatings. We have uh, not just beatings doled out by the clergy themselves, uh, but you know you have a lot of these clergymen uh, have Kurdish bodyguards. And then when they have this Kurdish bodyguard, this is a sign that I'm not just, I don't just have a Muslim protector. It's that he is connected, of course, to, you know, this, 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 this confederation or you know, this elite. Um, and that, you know, if you mess with me, you're also messing uh, with them. So they, they use these tools to beat back efforts by reformers to take control of the ecclesiastical institutions to perpetuate these relationships as best they can. And of course, these Muslim elites at the edges of the empire, particularly among the Kurds and uh, the Derebes, as mentioned previously, uh, you know, they very much are invested in saving these things as well, because that's going to save their positions as well. Uh, so the we actually have a, the best known case of murder is uh, the murder of the the patient, the, the Catholicos of Akhtamar in 1864, uh, Pedros Bulbul, who is murdered not by his immediate successor, Khashadu Shiroyan, uh, but is murdered uh, at his orders, more or less. And Shiroyan and his allies among the Kurds, the, the Kurds with whom he is allied actually come from the Kurdish emirates, which had been largely destroyed by the Ottoman state. So we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, why is it that these Kurdish emirs are invested in Armenian ecclesiastics? It makes, it makes no sense based on what we've read about in Ottoman history to this point. Um, and what becomes clear is that you know, they see this as an interconnected struggle against centralization. They try to kind of... Um, 
maintain a united front against the centralization of the state. Uh, but as I said beforehand, um, this one isn't going to work, um, not just because the Armenians aren't going to be able to kind of uh, with, withstand things, uh, but because the the attack on the, if you will, from their perspective, on the institutions of the Armenian church constitute an attack on, on the Emirates as well. They constitute an attack on the Derebes. These groups don't survive. As we know, the Derebes don't survive. They are largely destroyed in the 1850s and 1860s. Uh, the Emirates had been destroyed large in the 1840s, but you know, really they, they give rise over the succeeding decades to tribes. We have this transition within uh, Kurdish politics where the Emirate declines and the tribe obtains as the primary uh, kind of unit, political unit uh, in that part of the world. So it, it, the Armenian church, therefore, is kind of at the forefront of this, it's, it's in the central uh, site of contestation in this general kind of uh, reordering, restructuring of the empire. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So um, then I'm, I'm, I'm also wondering now to go back to those um, individuals uh, whose lives and careers that you trace in the book, um, one of them, and, and please correct my um, pronunciation if, if, if it is not correct, um, Makertic Hrimian, um, who is one of the um, one of one of these people whose careers you trace in in great detail, um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about him, his life, and the way in which it sort of tracks with the um, wider story that you are telling about um, Armenian partnership with the Tanzimats, and then the sort of eventual marginalization of the Armenians. Um, as a sort of result of this, uh, what you call a catastrophic success. Sure. So uh, Khrimian is one of the most fascinating people I've encountered in the course of doing my in, in the course of doing my scholarship. I was so this book, as is the case with almost all first books by academics, uh, comes out of my dissertation. And uh, when I went to the University of Michigan to for graduate school, I had initially wanted to do a project on labor migration uh, to look at the ways in which uh, in kind of the Armenian circulation of labor between the eastern provinces and the capital uh, created new opportunities and you know, re kind of organized the the community. And I thought that this was going to be an interesting way of going, uh, kind of diving into the the nation making debate. Um, I obviously moved far away from that project, but Khrimian featured prominently in it uh, because he was, unlike others, he positioned himself as a champion of labor migrants and it's because he himself was a labor migrant. So Khrimian is this really exceptional character, as I mentioned. He's born in 1820 in Vaughn, um, born into a family of some means, middle-class family. They live in the, the gardens uh, suburb of Vaughn. Uh, he receives um, education from um, that's sponsored by his uncle from the church. Uh, and then he ends up going to Istanbul at some point. And when he's in Istanbul, he actually begins working originally as a labor migrant. Uh, he works uh, as a, in one of the guilds, and he eventually makes his way up and gets notoriety as this teacher. Uh, and he ends up teaching for some of these very well-to-do families. Because he had an education, he you know, begins writing. Uh, he gets some type of sponsorship for – he's writing about Armenia. Right? That's the, the main thing. He's writing about the land of Armenia, the history of Armenia, the people living today, or at least in the, in the 19th century, of Armenia. And this attracts the interest of a lot of uh, as a lot of people. Uh, he gains um, patronage from some of the well-to-do Armenians in the capital. Is able to publish his materials. So that when he returns to Vaughn, he is um, I don't say given a hero's welcome, but he's kind of welcomed into the elite of society. Uh, when he comes back to Vaughn, however, he sees that 
his wife and daughter had passed away. So he's no longer really kind of tied to the same social relations that he had previously. Uh, but he is kind of really adamant about helping his community. Uh, in fact, while he was in uh, the capital, one of the reasons why he's taken on by these people who are close to the government is because he has this knowledge of the provinces. He is someone who comes from that world, who speaks that, literally speaks that language. So when the community is going into Cilicia in league with the government, because the government is trying to remove the database, as we mentioned, they send uh, our Armenian delegations to Cilicia to investigate the church, to investigate clergymen there. Krimian, still a layman, is part of one of these delegations, and he sees all this corruption in the church, and he sees how this is not just like a phenomenon in Vaughan, which he knew well, which is close to Akhtamar and you know, has close relations with Erzurum and with Mush and these other kind of major Armenian uh, population centers. He sees that this is like really an empire-wide phenomenon, that the, the church is, it's important, it's central to Armenian identity, it's central, I mean, even if you're an atheist in this situation, you can't escape your subjectivity as an Ottoman. You have to be an Armenian. You have to be a member of the church. So he sees that the church um, is in desperate need of reform. Um, but only now, because he has these connections with people in the capital, he sees opportunity for himself. So he enters the clergy. He enters the clergy as an adult, which is a very honestly, rare thing, but certainly unique thing to a certain extent. Most people who enter the clergy and rise to its highest levels enter the clergy either as children or as adolescents. Uh, they are kind of brought into the culture of the church. Uh, they learn that you know the the, the priest who um, you know, makes you a deacon, confirms you as a deacon, or uh, ordains you as a priest, that person becomes like your father, your spiritual father. And the other people that he ordains are also part of your family. And you become a clique within this particular monastic order, that particular monastic order, and you largely battle with other clans or families within that same uh, group for access to this, you know, kind of well-to-do Armenian or this uh, government official, right? And they um, so they're, they're competing with one another. Hrimian is outside of all of that. He, he's outside of all of that, and he can be outside of it because he has support of these bureaucrats in the imperial capital. So he begins this process of trying to reorganize the church. And a lot of the stuff that he's doing in terms of attacking like the very kind of like specific ecclesiastical rules uh, with respect to monasteries, the election of abbots, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all these things that he's doing, a lot of it makes its way into the Armenian constitution. So, and he understands very clearly that if I can reform this monastery, that then dictates how we relate as a community of Armenians to the powers that be in this part of the world. And if we can get our own people in there, then we can form more kind of closer relationships with the government itself, which is why I imagine one of the many reasons why I imagine that the constitution, as I said before, it legislates effectively a diocese, but it's a diocese that mimics almost exactly the imperial system of governance, right? So, so uh, prelates are no longer supposed to be placed in provincial areas. If we look at the history of uh, Armenia and the Armenian Church, all right, in the, in the Greek Church, um, these uh, people are called metropolitans very clearly because they're in metropolitan centers for the most part. Armenians have no such tradition. Your large monasteries where where, where um, prelacies are based are located somewhere out in the country. They say, no, you have to move it into the center, you have to move into the city where the governor sits, such that you can have access to the governor, such that you can work with the governor. Uh, and they basically create the system down to the to the to the to the village level as well, where you know, priests are supposed to represent people to um, this person, and you know, the, the prelate is supposed to represent this person to the community to the government, and the patriarch will represent the community to the uh, to the to the sublime port. So Krimin is very much kind of at the center of all of this, and is really trying to, as I said, they take this idea of the partnership with the state very seriously, and they're trying to basically match themselves to the state at every level of governance in order to participate in the centralization of the state. Krimian is very kind of front and center with that. Eventually, but as we said, there's lots of opposition to this. Uh, he survives, at least at least he claims, at least one assassination attempt. Uh, he, we do know from the documentary record that uh, his students who 
are made clergymen and sent across the, the empire to serve in various capacities. Uh, they are constantly being intimidated by, uh, by Kurds, by uh, who, in, who are allied or in league with Armenian clergymen or the Armenian elites. Um, we constantly find this playing out all over the place. Khrimyan eventually becomes patriarch. He shortens a very brief four-year term, 1869 to 73, and it's in this time that he tries to introduce all of these kind of uh, new um, uh, new policies that are going to deepen the partnership with the state, uh, makes an effort at, at one point even to uh, introduce conscription into the military for Armenians, uh, goes to the state, says, you need to expand your military presence in the provinces. Again, this one's completely counter to what we think about this guy. Right? He's supposed to be this uh, you know, kind of like forerunner of Armenian nationalism, this you know, great paragon of Armenian uh, patriotism. And here he is going to the state saying, more military bases, please. More police stations, please. And oh, by the way, you should include Armenians in these things as well. Right? Uh, so he's very much at the forefront of, as I said, Ottoman state centralization. Um, it fails, of course. Uh, and it fails pretty dramatically. Uh, but he remains pretty committed to it until the end. Uh, he eventually makes his way back to Vaughn in the 1880s. But he makes his way back to Vaughn after both the, the Russo-Turkish War. Uh, and he makes his way there uh, basically at the same time that the Ubedullah, uh, Sheikh Ubedullah uprising is taking place uh, in this part of the, of the empire. And what he doesn't understand is that the relations have changed completely. As you said, the catastrophic success, the, the Armenians have done the work. They have reformed their community. They have removed what the state and the community consider to be the bad actors, the people who are tied to these Kurdish rebels, the people who are tied to these Derebe rebels, the people who are tied, you know, who are invested in the abusive tax collection practices. They've done the work. They've gotten rid of those people. The state, however, has made no such effort. It has not made the same effort as the Armenians. And after the Ubaidullah uprising, you basically see a really pronounced shift. It had already been a foot in the previous decade, but a really pronounced shift in the government's policies, where it begins instead co-opting these tribes who, as I said before, have now kind of replaced the, the emirate as the primary political unit. It starts working with the tribes instead. Uh, and it makes very kind of clear overtures to these tribes. So these tribes are only able to get to this point in large part because the Armenians have carried out the reform. That's, what, that's why the success is catastrophic. The Armenians have effectively taken themselves out of imperial society by helping to centralize the state. These new tribes in that come into the, that, that uh, uh, kind of replace the emirates, they have no need to work with the Armenians, right? They don't have any longstanding relationships. They're not moving capital through the Arme the institutions of the Armenian church. Uh, they're not leaning on Armenian clergymen to kind of broker between them and the state when an issue uh, comes up. Uh, when an issue comes emerges between them, they're not going to an Armenian clergyman as a kind of an honest broker to settle the dispute. They don't need to do any of this stuff. They can just work directly with the state. And as we see this this kind of this closer relationship, and these tribes are also smaller than the Emirates, so they're easier for the state to control. So we see the state now kind of ignoring the Armenians, ignoring all of their, their complaints, telling them very clearly in 1881, guess what? You can't use your institutions to make claims on the empire's politics. Well, if you're an Armenian, what are you supposed to do? Right? How he, you go as an individual to the governor and say, I have a problem. He's not going to listen to you. He has no reason to listen to you because you're complaining about a Kurd who's a member of a tribe that he has to do business with in the first place. So he has no incentive to resolve your issue. So the Armenians have no real access to power as a result of all this. As I said, this is, again, why, why the success is catastrophic. They take themselves out of society entirely. So Khrimyan, as well, ends up being sent into exile in 1885 to Jerusalem, uh, where he is kind of placed under the watchful eye of more reactionary Armenian clergymen. And... Uh, before he leaves, however, he makes an effort to bring back all of these people that he had spent decades fighting. All these people that had been kind of you know, positioned between the community and these different groups. He goes out of his way to get them out of there and to make bring back to bring them back. And but they too, they're, they're left with nothing, right? Because they're not dealing with the same elites they had been dealing with twenty years prior. They're dealing with a new cadre of elites 
who just work with the with the government directly. And this, of course, comes to a head with uh, the eventual formation of the Hamidiye. Um, and we see, therefore, you know, even though we have religion being pulled away from the structures of Ottoman governance, we then have these new elites are all Muslims, and they just kind of begin uh, through a uh, shared uh, political identity as Muslims uh, that then obtains as the new kind of language of politics that's beyond the state and something that the Armenians cannot access. And they are left completely out to dry. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, this the, the last point that you made um, about there being some um, affinity in the Hamidian period between the state and uh, the Kurdish um, tribal groups kind of connects to the question or something that um, that 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 I'm I'm curious about um, because so I understand that over the course of the century the Ottoman state like just to think about this from the perspective of the Ottoman state for a second is it first sort of partnering with the Armenians in order to carry out its centralization policies. And then at some point things change and now it is partnering with the tribes in order to carry out, I mean, I guess like carry out what, but also um, I, I maybe continue its centralization um, policies. But then is, is, the religious sort of um, community between the Ottoman state members and the Kurds, the only thing that is bringing this partnership into life? Or would you say that, uh, like, what is the dynamic that is changing, I suppose, is, 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 what, I'm, is what I'm trying to get at? Because, I mean, at the, I'm sorry, but at the beginning of the story, we also have this moment where the Armenians who are resistant to reform are allying themselves with the Kurds, right? So here we have like a bunch of different alliances and partnerships that maybe it would be useful to try to parse out a little bit. Sure. So as the, as the Kurdish emirates are breaking up and you see these tribes then emerging as the kind of like prizes of the primary political unit among basically in Kurdistan, if you will, um, they are separate, and I would say separate, but they're, they're more isolated. They're more kind of like easy to control. They're more easy to kind of deal with, right? They're not these massive political units like an emirate is. So um, as that's breaking apart, you still have people within these tribes who have worked with these Armenians, right? Who have worked with these like kind of like reactionary. Like just because the emirate disappears doesn't mean that all the people involved with it also disappeared. So those longstanding interpersonal relations uh, help the Armenian, the reactionary cl Armenian clergy kind of rebel against the introduction of the millet system as a tool of state centralization, right? Um, however, as these become kind of like more widespread, as Armenians, as these kind of, as I said, you know, from the Armenian, from the Armenian reformer perspective, these bad Armenian actors are pulled out. Well, then even these guys who would have known this or that bishop or this or that clergyman and done business with him, they no longer have the ability to, to do business with the Armenian church as a result. So they are instead just going to go directly to the state without having to circumvent or you know, kind of move through the institutions of the Armenian state or the Armenian church rather. Uh, similarly, as new elites, right? So new peers, again, this is a multi-decade process. As these new people come to the, come to the fore, they don't need to deal with these people at all. Right, so you have also, you know, a lot of Kurdish tribes are being pushed north because the boundary between uh, Iran and the Ottoman Empire is being demarcated. They're trying to control it, so this leads to more Kurds being pushed into these areas. So you have Kurds who have never interacted with Armenians before, now coming into this area, and they don't know. I'm like, again, so the, again, 20 years ago, this Kurdish emir would have been like, yeah, you know, like the, the Armenian bishop is my buddy. You know, we rip off everybody together. Uh, now these guys are looking at like, who's this? What are they doing here? I come in, I bring my pastures, you know, I you know, bring my bring my sheep, and you complain about me. What the heck? <laughs> Where else am I going to get grass? Uh, and they're saying, well, we can't grow crops. Well, who's going to win that battle? <laughs> uh, ob obviously not the Armenians. So uh, the oppression of the Armenians increases as a result of this because they don't have, because you have this new, new political units, new elites, uh, and no real kind of tools for interacting with them. 
So they become marginalized in Ottoman society as a result. But this is all a product, I argue, of centralization and the introduction of the Millet uh, system as a kind of very powerful tool in mm -hmm. the process of, of centralization. Is that a bit more clear? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I, I, yeah, I mean, because I also work on similar topics, I find that the last question was a little bit selfish. I just really wanted to understand how you understood this relationship. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. One last question. What are you working on these days? Uh, so I'm working on a project right now. You maybe heard some echoes of it in my answers that uh, it, it expands in important respects upon what I've done in this first book. Um, I'm trying now to look at how the, again, it's kind of centering the politics of difference and using this as the primary lens for thinking about uh, kind of the last couple centuries of Ottoman rule and the beginning of Turkish republicanism. Um, and so basically I'm using this to bring together uh, kind of as part of one coherent narrative, state centralization, secularization, and the rise of, polit the rise of political Islam. Uh, and the rise also of an authoritarian state. These four things, I argue, are deeply intertwined with one another. Uh, if we kind of take the, the kind of late Ottoman, early Republican view, you know, we obviously see Islam and secularism as being two kind of contradictory or countervailing forces. But if you view it from the, from the vantage point of non-Muslim experience and the politics of difference, they're two sides of the exact same coin. Uh, we see uh, Islam, as I said, uh, you know, you have these... Uh, Kurdish elites, for example, you know, no longer do they have to kind of navigate the, the brokerage of the Armenians, but they start connecting with the state. And the social, form, the, the social tools that are used to kind of cement that relationship are Islam. But this is happening at the same time that the state is taking Islam away from the political uh, process. We see the, uh, the enforcement of uh, laws on the, the pious foundations. Uh, we see it on the introduction of secular courts, right? So we see the, the state pushing religion out. But when the state pushes religion out, that's because it's pushing the politics of, dif of religious difference out. That's why the Armenians can't participate anymore. They don't. They no longer have a defined role to play. They can't use their church. There's, they're nothing. Um, but the groups that are then coming in and replacing them are Nakshabandi networks. The Nakshabandis are not very, you have lots of different Sufi groups. Lots of different Sufi groups are like really good at dealing and interacting with non-Muslims. The Nakshabandi Khalidi order is not that at all. Uh, they are very, very reactionary. And this group begins the process. It really kind of helps tie together the peripheries of the empire. So they become very popular among the Kurds at the exact same time that uh, the tribes are emerging. So the Nakshabandis, unlike the Qadiris, don't, you know, don't uh, approve of a kind of dynastic succession. Well, if you're a Kurdish emir who would like to pass on your position to a son, being a Qadiri sheikh is a pretty good way of doing that. Being a Nakshabandi, not so much, because that then passes it to the student. So it becomes a tour. So all these things are kind of interacting with one another, again, at the same time that state centralization is taking place. And you see this kind of new Muslim political community taking shape as a result. One that, as I said, very clearly excludes Armenians, excludes Jews, excludes, excludes Greeks, um, excludes Arab Christians. Um, but again, it's happening in the secularized space. So politi political Islam is happening. It's, become, it's obtaining as an important political identity, uh, but it's beyond kind of uh, reproach because it's beyond the official institutions of the state. And that leads the non-Muslims with really nowhere to go. And as a result, uh, and we see this process playing out in the 19th century, and it's happening at the same time that we see increased amounts of violence directed against non-Muslims. Uh, you know, be beginning with you know Damascus, beginning with you know going into uh, how the state responds to uh, the Derebes, the Derebe insurrections. You know, they co-opt the, the Turkish, the Turkmen Derebes, the Armenian, like the last like embers of Armenian. Um, uh, royalty that are there are dealt with very harshly, right? They're dealt mm -hmm. with very harshly. Yeah. These, these yeah. people are allied yeah. with, with the database. Then um, obviously we get into the, the increased violence against the Syrians, uh, the violence directed against the, the Greek Orthodox in the wake of the, the so-called revolution. Uh, just it, these things are all intertwined with another. So I'm, I'm looking at that and I think it will really kind of present a different view of secularism and uh, political Islam and authoritarianism 
in this space, but it, it all comes together. I, I imagine we'll see. I have to write the book still. Uh, from when you view it from the vantage point of non-Muslim experience, that sounds really exciting. Um, thank you for sharing sharing that with us. Hopefully, uh, we can have you back on air to talk about uh, this new project when it's finished and out. Um, yeah, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me today, um, and hope to see you again on New Books Network. Thank you very much.